Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Vladine's Jackie Gardina and Mitch Winnick. When it comes to being an ally, I have so many privileges and advantages, and there are many moments, especially with the work I do, where I see my role as using all of these blessings that I've been given to make space for others. Lift as you rise, keep that door open for others. Whatever space you're in, you can do that. It can be at your place of work, being thoughtful on mentorship, letting someone know that you see them, giving them opportunities to speak on panels or to publish something. That's our guest, civil rights activist, Juveria Khan. Mitch, today's episode is focused on something that we are both passionate about, diversity within the legal profession. I know we both believe that for the public to have confidence in our legal system, the legal profession must reflect the diversity of our nation. So our guest today shares our passion and is actually doing amazing work to not just talk about it, but actually to create change around it. Jackie, as you said, Juveria Khan is a passionate civil rights advocate. After clerking for the Honorable Michael P. Shea in the District Court of the District of Connecticut, Juveria worked at the law firm of Patterson, Belknap, Webb, and Tyler, where she maintained a dedicated pro bono practice focusing on racial and religious discrimination claims. She then served as a senior staff attorney at Muslim Advocates, where she successfully combined litigation and public campaign strategies in cases ranging from public accommodation claims to religious land use lawsuits. In 2019, she founded the Appellate Project, the first and only organization focused on diversifying the appellate bar. In recognition of her work, Juveria has received numerous awards. Her work has been featured in the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, Teen Vogue, the National Law Journal, and Bloomberg Law. She received her BA in political science and Middle Eastern and Islamic studies from New York University and her JD from Columbia Law School. Javeria, welcome to Sidebar. Thank you for having me. Javeria, we have a lot of listeners who aren't necessarily engaged with the legal system except through what they hear on the news. Can you share with our listeners what the Appellate Project is and, and what it does? Sure. Maybe it'll be helpful to start with what Appellate work is generally, since that was certainly something I was not aware of when I was going to law school. As we know, the highest appellate court is our Supreme Court, but it hears only 2% of the cases it receives, which means 98% of final appellate rulings, decisions that go up on appeal, are decided by intermediary federal and appellate state courts. These Decisions are on every aspect of our personal lives, our ability to vote, how we're policed, how we access healthcare, corporate finance, you name it. There are appellate rulings that are shaping those in the most intimate and meaningful ways. The appellate lawyers who bring those cases often do so strategically to move the law in the direction that they would like to see it go. Of course, appellate judges 
make the final decisions on what these laws mean and how they apply to all of us without the benefit of a jury. So it's pretty much appellate lawyers and judges having a conversation on what these laws mean and how they apply to all of us. The worst kept secret is that the appellate bar is overwhelmingly homogenous. It does not at all represent the communities that those decisions impact. And so often appellate courts disproportionately impact communities of color, but people of color are grossly underrepresented as both appellate attorneys and judges. And this has huge consequences when you think about how appellate courts operate. There are no juries. It is essentially the appellate attorneys shaping and presenting the arguments which the appellate judges then decide what those laws mean and how they apply to all of us. So when you have a group without the benefit of the diverse lived experiences that a group that represents our society brings, you get decisions that often feel very disconnected for most of us and have real consequences on the law and on our lives. And so what the Appellate Project is trying to do is level that playing field by ensuring that everyone knows about appellate work in the first instance and has access to the resources and opportunities to pursue it if that's something that they're interested in with the ultimate goal that our highest courts reflect our communities and, and so does the law that it produces. Javeria, your, your mission is particularly appropriate when Jackie and I look at the students we have in our law schools. We are known as opportunity law schools. Almost 60% of our students are students of color. And so we're constantly looking at ways to broaden their awareness of the opportunities they have, particularly as I know you've pointed out in your organization, many of these are first-gen students. They don't have lawyers in their family. They don't have friends and family and colleagues that have experience in the law. And they're just unfamiliar with how all of this works. So tell me a little about your mentorship program and your clerkship support, because all of these are the type of building blocks that we could see would be better suited to be mirrored in law school as well. Our mentorship program is designed to address those information and access barriers that you're talking about. You know, if you take a step back to look at how appellate recruiting and hiring is typically done, it's, did you go to one or two of the top law schools? And are are you already connected with the quote unquote right people who can tell you about appellate work and the steps you need to take? Which means, of course, that a large swath of highly qualified students never even learn about appellate work, much less the pathway they need to get there. And so our mentorship program connects law students from around the country with mentors in the appellate bar, typically someone who's more senior, who has substantial experience and a broader network, along with someone who's more junior, typically someone who's recently navigated the clerkship process and can talk about how important that is and help students navigate that. In addition, we provide programming every week to further support our students through their appellate journey. This includes resources on the different pathways to appellate work, connecting them with different appellate lawyers from around the country, a lot of clerkship support, connections with judges. We go to visit circuit courts, watch oral argument. The students meet with judges and their clerks and chambers after so they can really see what happens in these spaces and see themselves in it. A lot of skill building workshops. So for example, the foundation of appellate work is being a strong research and writer. So we do legal writing workshops to really deepen those skills. Our students in the Sears cohort are representing 54 different law schools from around the country. There is a 
great variation in how much access to these types of resources they receive. So we're just trying to level the playing field and make sure that they have the same opportunities as some of their peers might have. The last thing I'll say is I think the key ingredient and the heart of the Appellate Project is really community and encouragement. It is a huge thing when someone just sees you and believes in you and encourages you. And too often the message first-gen students of color receive is don't even bother, or there's no one like me in this space, so I'm not even going to try. We try to counter that message and say, yes, absolutely, try, you can do it, go for it. That's incredibly helpful. And as Mitch said, our schools are focused on this idea of diversifying the legal profession. But one of the things that you've brought to light is it's not just about diversifying the legal profession, but actually making sure that different pockets of the legal profession are diverse. So the appellate bar or the corporate bar or family law all reflect the diversity of our nation. But that brings me to my next question, which is unfortunately, diversity has become a controversial word. Immediately after the Supreme Court issued its decision in Students for Fair Admissions about whether or not race could be used in the admissions process within higher education, there were organizations that threatened to sue any law school suspected of giving preferences to people of color or women. Some organizations have actually sued law firms that have diversity fellowship programs. How has the Supreme Court decision affected your work and more importantly, the students that you're working with? On the student side, It certainly has a huge psychological impact to know that the profession you're entering is sending a message that they don't see you fully or support you fully. Our students have never had the privilege of pretending that the world is colorblind because that's not how the world receives them. And so I think it's incredibly hard to enter a profession where that's the messaging that you're receiving. Substantively, it's a huge challenge for organizations across the board, including us. We had a program that's been in development, a summer fellowship program that we've essentially had to pause because of this litigation and uncertainty about whether it would be challenged. At the same time, I really urge folks to not just give up. The pendulum swinging as it always has when there's push for change and I'm happy to talk more about that, but on an optimistic note, this is making people more cognizant of how far we've gone on the other side and that there is a real need to to push back against this. Juveria, one of the things Jackie has brought up in a number of our episodes is that diversity isn't just the issue of opportunity for the recipient, for the employee, for the law student, for the law clerk, but it actually is an important role in the voices that are heard in drafting appellate opinions. And my assumption is, I was never an appellate clerk, but my assumption is, and many times the clerks have a huge role to play, and the appellate lawyers who are arguing before the court have a huge role to play in framing these issues in a broader perspective. And if it's only the homogeneous group you've talked about, they really don't bring that perspective to their legal argument, to their drafting, to the decisions that get made. So how hard is it to get a student to not just think about, well, this could be a good job opportunity, but their viewpoints could really craft the way the law becomes enacted? 
I think you've really nailed what makes a pellet work so unique is the impact that you can have. And to our students, that's something we really try to center is that we need you. We need you in these spaces because you may be the first or the only, and we know how hard that is, but that's even more reason of why we need you there. When you think about appellate rulings, take Justice O'Connor, who just passed away. There was such an eloquent piece that she had written about the impact that it had on her and the court when Thurgood Marshall joined the bench because he brought that lived experience to the civil rights issues that the court was deciding that just changed the conversation and brought a grounded moral reality to the work. That's what you can do as an appellate advocate and as an appellate judge, and it strengthens the legal system for all of us. We are going to take a brief break, and when we come back, Jackie and I are going to continue our conversation with Juveria Khan, founder of The Appellate Project. Monterey College of Law faculty are dedicated to helping students navigate law school and prepare for the bar exam. I and the other professors of the school strive really hard to ensure that the students are well prepared, not only to help them through law school, but also to get ready for the bar exam. I have a sense of responsibility that I feel that just as the school gave to me and helped me to embark on this journey that I'm on, I should also give back and help students to succeed. Visit montereylaw.edu. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Visit our website, trellis.law. I want to circle back to something you said and take you up on your offer to talk more about this idea of hope around the diversity issue or next steps for us, because I'm sure it's at the forefront of your mind, given that your work revolves around this. I'm thinking about something that's been in the news of late and probably will remain in the news, which is President Claudine Gay. She was the first African-American woman at the helm of Harvard University. And she received intense scrutiny, eventually resulting in her resignation. The scrutiny wasn't organic. It was specifically orchestrated by those who promoted the idea that she received her position because she was a black woman and it was a quote unquote diversity hire. The idea that DEI initiatives and programs should be eliminated. How would you respond to critics who say these kinds of programs shouldn't exist. For those very vocal critics of Claudine Gay and DEI initiatives, I would ask where that level of scrutiny was to all of the deans prior who were all white men except for one woman who were in that role before. Where was that same level of scrutiny and why is it being applied now? If you take a look at this litigation against DEI efforts across the board, it shows that there is a deeper agenda here. I think what I find so frustrating about this pushback against DEI is when you look at this litigation, it is a way to sidestep the substantive question 
that is presented. So by that, I mean, take a look at the litigation. The case against the Freedom Fund, for example, which provides $20,000 grants to Black women-led businesses because Black women receive less than 1% of all venture capital funding. There's a lawsuit against an organization that provides resources and support, maternal support to Black mothers because Black women overwhelmingly have medical and health disparities that has been shown again and again. By attacking those and saying that they're racist because it's not available to white men avoids the substantive question of why are those outcomes happening? When we proceed with this sort of extreme colorblind mentality, it puts us in a situation where we can't talk about why we got here and we cannot address it. And I think that is both intellectually and morally dishonest. And the most frustrating thing I feel is the courts pushing this doctrine because the courts see the briefing on both sides. That is their job to dispense justice and make the litigants feel heard. And when you issue rulings that just don't acknowledge or address in any meaningful way what people are trying to say when they have these cases, it is intellectually dishonest, but it's also morally dishonest and it erodes public trust in these institutions. And you see that again and again with public trust in our highest courts at an all-time low. If you care about the integrity of courts, you, you care about people feeling hurt and justice, that should be extremely concerning. Juveria, one of our previous guests, Damon Hewitt, who's the president of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under the Law, pointed out that efforts to ignore race really deny the origin of our country and deny the pluralistic diversity we have that is our strength. As he said, as he concluded his session, we shouldn't be attempting to ignore race. We should be attempting to embrace and celebrate our differences. And it's only with those changes that advances can be made. I would presume that you would agree with Damon's view on that. Absolutely. And when it comes to the work the Appellate Project does, that is really the heart of what we are trying to say. Your lived experiences and the perspective that you bring is something that we all need and should be valued because it creates a stronger legal system for all of us. We seem to be so comfortable with this notion when it comes to other contexts, increasingly, for example, gender. I'll give the example of Justice Ginsburg. There's the famous case where she was the only woman at the court at the time. The case was a young girl had been strip searched in public school because of allegations she had drugs on her. So she was down to her underwear and they found some Advil. And the question was whether that search was reasonable. The rest of Justice Ginsburg's colleagues dismissed the case initially saying, well, we've all been in locker rooms. What's the big deal? I don't, I don't think this is a serious violation of anything. And Justice Ginsburg famously said, it was clear none of my colleagues had ever been a 13-year-old girl. And she explained to them what it would feel like to go through that type of situation, how humiliating it would be, and how it would stay with you for so long. And she eventually persuaded her colleagues to rule alongside her. And we celebrate that as a win, as an example of the community that was most impacted by that decision having an outcome that is more just because someone who understands their lived experience was there to give voice to it. It's the same thing with race. I think the pushback is such an extreme end of the spectrum for the viewers listening, the students, the allies, the people who are troubled by what's going on, just know that 
you need to be in those spaces too to change that and you can. And that I think is really what we need to be focusing on and not as hard as it is just to get too defeated and pull back completely. Really appreciate those comments. And I think it echoes what others have said is that we have to get off the sidelines and be part of the solution, not just complain about the problem. The reason that I was asking that question of you earlier about how would you respond to those critics is because it is something that I think we all need to be able to do when someone speaks out against or questions the value of diversity. And so I really appreciated the answer that you gave. One of the things that we don't do, and I'll use President Gay as an example again, is no one questioned the qualifications of any white man that had that position. The only questions arose when it was a black woman. So the baseline is white men are qualified and anyone else is going to have to prove or disprove that they're unqualified. There is a different bar that is placed in front of people that we don't want to recognize or acknowledge. I wonder for you, as you go out and do your work and talk about it, are you talking to groups that are not supportive of your vision? Or are you primarily talking to people who support your vision? I think one thing that's so special about the Appellate Project community is that we've drawn in people across the ideological spectrum who are really understanding of what is a very straightforward, intuitive concept that diversity in this space really matters and really leads to better outcomes for all of us. But of course, we are in the appellate bar and many of these decisions are coming from the appellate bar. And so, of course, there are people who strongly disagree. And I think you have to keep doing the work you do. But this is also a very personal journey for people. They have to be willing to examine that defensiveness and think through what the other side is saying and really hear it. And for the rest of us, I think it's really important to also remember as we continue this fight is to take care of ourselves. This messaging is something that is easy to internalize. And you asked, how is the impact on our students? I think it's more important now than ever to let these students know you are valued, care about your own self-worth. If you value and love yourself and see your own value, then anything that comes at you, you have that defense, that love built up for yourself and you know your worth. And as simple as that sounds, it's very human at the end of the day. And so really taking good care of yourself mentally, emotionally, as you move through these spaces is really critical. It's not your job to change everybody's mind. One of the things I find challenging personally and professionally is I am in that category of entitled white 60-year-old male. I did not have the barriers that many others had to get a college education, become a lawyer, have an exciting and interesting career, and ultimately be a law school dean. But I'm a believer. I don't need to be convinced that these are important things that we need to change and address race in a positive way. How does someone like me help the cause? I have the opportunity to use the access that I have the megaphone that I have, but am I usurping somebody else's opportunity to speak who's lived the experience? Do I help or do I hurt the ultimate outcome? I think your question has the answer in that you're recognizing when 
is it appropriate to take space and when is it best to make space when it comes to being an ally i have so many privileges and advantages and there are many moments especially with the work i do where i see my role as using all these blessings that i've been given to make space for others lift as you rise keep that door open for others whatever space you're in you can do that it can be at your place of work being thoughtful on mentorship letting someone know that you see them giving them opportunities to speak on panels or to publish something or to come with you to meetings where you're meeting other important people expanding their networks there's countless ways to make space for others in a way that is really thoughtful and and intentional and I, the ripple effects of that are extraordinary if folks see it start seeing their abilities in that way we are going to take another brief break and when we come back Jackie and I are going to continue our conversation with Juveria Khan founder of the appellate project Kaplan helps thousands of law students become lawyers every year. Prepare to pass your bar exam with personalized prep that fits how you learn best. Choose from a traditional two-month course, a flexible three-month course, or semester-long prep. And get your personalized study plan, which includes thousands of realistic questions and unlimited essay grading. No one does bar review like Kaplan. Find the bar review that fits you best so you can score your best. Visit captest.com bar. That's K-A-P-Test.com bar. The Master of Arts in Law degree from the Colleges of Law was designed to empower working professionals to become innovative problem solvers in careers that intersect with the law. The legal field is more than what happens in a courtroom after all. The Colleges of Law. Learn more at collegesoflaw.edu. Javari, you've described what the Appellate Project is, but what prompted you to start it? I didn't grow up with any lawyers. I became interested in the law because of 9-11. I grew up in a small rural community in Arizona, and the pushback for the Muslim community where I was was very swift and immediate, and it really got me curious about who was creating those laws. It was clear that they had no connection to my community or understanding of my community. I am fortunate to have parents who encouraged my curiosity. And I just started reading more about different communities throughout American history and how they had used the courts as a way to assert their basic rights, this idea of equal justice under law. And it really underscored for me how important representation is to have your voice in these spaces. That general notion is what led me to law school, but most of law school, I felt very confused, overwhelmed, uncertain on how to do the work I wanted to do, which was impactful that focused on my community, the Muslim community in the U.S. So the first few years of practicing, I felt very lost a lot of times just trying to get where I wanted to go. It was years into being a lawyer that I started doing impact litigation in the way that I had wanted, and that was my first meaningful taste of appellate work. I was really struck by both how much I enjoyed appellate work, the research, the writing suited me so much better than trial work, which is what I had primarily been exposed to before. I felt very frustrated. I wish I had known earlier because there's so many steps I would have taken to try and do that from the beginning. And second, was just really struck by the lack of diversity, especially racial diversity in appellate spaces and the impact that that has on the law and the ways that we've discussed a really 
pivotal case during that time in underscoring this issue for me was the Muslim ban litigation and just seeing it go up on appeal through so many courts and knowing that not a single Muslim judge would hear it, even though it would overwhelmingly impact millions of Muslims around the world because there were no Muslims on the bench. And you see the final decision and it absolutely reflects that complete lack of voice or perspective from the community. All of that really underscored for me the need to both connect those two dots. Why didn't I know and why aren't there more people like me in these spaces? And that led me to start the Appellate Project. That's a really powerful origin story. So thank you for sharing it with us. You said in your answer that you looked back through history and saw how different groups had used the courts to move us towards that more perfect union. And we had a guest on, Julie Souk, who does comparative law, looks at other countries and our own. She made a, a striking comment in her episode, which was, we need to stop relying on the courts to push our rights forward. And for her in particular, she wrote a book called After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. So it was specifically focused on gender issues. Do you still see the courts as a mechanism to move this country towards that multiracial pluralistic democracy that we first imagined at its beginnings? I am an eternal optimist and I do. I am the daughter of immigrants, and I think like many immigrant families, my parents came here because they truly believe in the values of America, of pushing to be a more perfect union, this idea of equal justice under law. No, we do not always get it right. Sometimes we get it very, very wrong, but we do fundamentally try. And I do believe in that. And I do believe you have to keep trying. And that is the only way that change happens. I have the privilege of working with hundreds of amazing lawyers and judges around the country through the Appellate Project, and they care deeply about integrity of the courts, and they do their job very seriously. The clerks to the judges, everybody involved really cares about it. I think there's a lot of people who take democracy and representation very seriously and connect those two dots. And so I, I do say don't give up on the courts. Play the long game, and we are the change, and we're here, and we're not going anywhere. I so love that answer because I'm like you, uh, an optimist, and I so believe in the judiciary. I've seen really amazing work be done recently in the judiciary. So I like your idea of not giving up on it. So thank you for that. Javeria, I can't think of a better, more optimistic, hopeful note to end on. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. Jackie, I'd like to start with one of the last things Javeria said in the episode, which was how important it is to have a broad range of voices that are being reflected, not only in who is hearing the cases as judges, but who is arguing the cases as lawyers. Appellate law is influenced so much by the orientation and the life history and the experiences of the lawyers who are involved in the process. The appellate project is devoted to getting a broader range of voices into this decision-making process. And I think that's a huge message that we should be thinking about as we consider how to improve access to justice, the justice process, and the development of law for our country. 
Absolutely. And I think that her story about why she started the appellate project was a powerful example of that very issue. She recognized that a decision about whether or not to ban people who were Muslims was being made without any Muslim voices as part of the conversation. And that was a really powerful moment for me. But there's other examples that we can point to. Having Justice Jackson on the court and asking questions during the affirmative action argument, she asked such powerful searching questions from her own lived experience that didn't come from the other justices who didn't experience what she has through her life. I think there is absolutely that idea of helping people realize that it is a win-win for our country. I think it's important for us to consider that although formalized, in some cases, legislatively created DEI programs are under attack right now. That is a factor of structure. It isn't a factor of what is best for society and what many of us think are important going forward. I would say that a program like the Appellate Project is equally as important now, or perhaps even more important now, as we continue to pursue the underlying goals which is that pluralistic, democratic, multiracial society that we live in, not just that we're trying to achieve. We have accomplished that in the United States. Now the question is how to excel at it, how to embrace it, how to do better. And I believe a project like the Appellate Project helps us with a process to get there. I hope that she has great success and continues to expand it across the country. And just another great example of someone who saw a problem and created her own solution to help solve that problem. And I'm always so impressed with people who are able to do that. And one of the things that I think really left me with a good feeling is her optimism in America, in our system, in the judiciary, and in what's possible. And I'm going to hold on to that. Once again, I want to thank everyone who joined us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to know what's on your mind. You can reach us at sidebarmedia.org. Sidebar would not be possible without our producer, David Eakin, who also composes and performs all of the Sidebar music. Thank you also to Go Go Zoger, who manages Sidebar's marketing and social media. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.